Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. Good morning. Never has there been a more welcome changing of the seasons. The jump season concluded yesterday at Sandown Park under gloriously sunny skies. So much upon which to reflect, so much to look forward to as well through this week, but so much to concentrate on as regards racing in the news and racing's future now that this government white paper has finally been released. If our winter of discontent is over, what is in store for this sport and the gambling industry as a whole. That is where we begin today's programme in the company of Racing Post senior writer Lee Mottishead, Neil Channing, who has flown in from the Channel Islands this morning, more of which in a, a few moments, and Joe Somerez-Smith, the chair of the British Horse Racing Authority and a man steeped in uh, the gambling industry. Neil Channing, first of all, thank you for being here. We knew it was a special day, a momentous day, an important day, when you agreed to take a very small plane from Alderney to get here. Well, I've totally blown the rotor, haven't I? I have reassured Lee that, as far as I know, he's still getting the full fee. So it's a, <laughs> I do it's it a, for the art. <laughs> we've never appeared on the sofa together. It's very exciting. Well, it is, it is yeah. exciting. The T-shirt today, socialism or barbarism? Well, that was the question that Rosa Luxemburg posed, and I think we, I think we all know the answer to that. Well, you say that. However, you've just flown in on a private jet. From a taxi. <laughs> so, um, a, a, a slightly right angles to, to where we're going. It had two propellers, that plane. There was no jet involved in it. <laughs> just, that's not you flying the damn thing, is it? No, I was sitting just behind the fellow, giving, giving advice where needed. OK, excellent. Well, you, you, your efforts in our cause are, are much appreciated. I came to try and help you with this thorny old subject of the gambling review. Hopefully we can stop talking about it soon. But we do need to talk about it now, so I'm going to let you have first go. Top line, when you'd completed a full read of the white paper, mm. what was your immediate thought? I was depressed, actually. I was mostly depressed. Lots of people said, oh, this is going to finally bring clarity. Uh, first of all, I was depressed because I thought these people at the DCMS are so lazy. You know, this thing's probably been sitting on a shelf for months. It was written, we heard it was written in Boris Johnson times, and it had been sent to number 10, gathering dust. I don't think that Lucy Fraser added that much extra to it. She probably spiced it up and put the intro in. And I thought to myself, well, you know, there are so many things that they're kicking into the long grass. I think the, the, uh, the Gambling Commission have 60... Uh, things that they've got to work on over the summer, further consultations needed, further reports, further looking at evidence. Um, in my mind, there's no evidence that the Gambling Commission are capable of doing any of this work. They may have enough people, but I don't think they've got enough expertise. Uh, the biggest winners in the whole thing were definitely the Gambling Commission. You know, we've looked at this as a two-sided argument the whole time between gambling reformers, 
uh, and gambling, big gambling operators. Uh, but, uh, but there is a third side. Uh, I thought the third side was supposed to be ordinary punters, but it's turned out it's the Gambling Commission. They're getting more budget, more people, more powers. Uh, and actually, loads of this stuff won't really be going into legislation. It'll just be down to the Gambling Commission to slip it in through the back door. What did they ever do to earn that right? Just in a moment, we will be hearing from the betting industry perspective. First of all, though, Joe Somerez-Smith, from your experience in the, in the gambling industry and your experience now as chair of the BHA, what does this mean in the, in the short term? What does this mean immediately for your day-to-day -day horse racing better? I don't think very much changes because so much goes into consultation now and essentially the bookmakers are trying to work out what these new limits actually mean. Will the Gambling Commission actually change any of the ways they apply it? So I think actually from a punter's perspective, you won't say in the very short term, you really won't see any difference. So is what has been infuriating betters over the last two and a half three, four years, going to continue to infuriate betters as regards the checks that bookmakers are imposing on them at the moment and the way that they, they can operate as recreational punters on a day-to-day -day basis? I'm afraid I think probably that that is the case because as this consultation goes on and we try and understand, well, the operators try and understand what the £125 check that comes in... Which is supposed to be a frictionless check, so it's not supposed to... Yes, affect I mean, you in terms of giving you, your documentation. When you, talk, when you talk to the operators, they say this actually doesn't exist yet. FinTech is not in that stage of development that we can actually do a frictionless check that doesn't leave any fingerprints in your credit record or something like that. So from their perspective, I think that they were hoping that the white paper would give a bit more clarity mm. about what they actually want to do. And I, really talking to them since it was published, the lack of clarity is something that's infuriating for them and bad for the racing industry. So we go into this consultation period, which could be pretty interminable. We've got an election at the back end of next year. We don't even know whether this government will be bringing most of this in. Um, you've got punters feeling hassled, harassed, fed up, jaded. Earlier this year, there was a figure of £40 million that had been lost to horse racing. Do you think that figure is accurate? I think certainly from the, some of the media rights numbers, um, it, it possibly could be. Um, I, have, I think we've had a good set of results uh, since November. Uh, margins have been quite high, so I think we've been insulated a little bit by that. But um, obviously, uh, you know, favourite winning in the Grand National doesn't give a big boost no. to the industry. Um, and uh, I mean, I think that the numbers are are a bit worrying. Yes. Okay. Well, we will talk in a little while about how racing may make up that shortfall. I want to bring in William Woodhams, who's the chief executive of Fitzdares Bookmakers. Uh, was in conversation with Evan Davis on Radio 4 earlier in the week. Uh, you, William, were trying to defend your industry, but also expressing your, your reservations about some of the shortcomings of the, of the white paper. Um, what worries you most? Well, I think we've enacted a lot of the, a lot of the stuff that's in the white paper already. So it's, it's you know, I think our, our takings on UK horse racing are 20% down. As Joe mentioned, that's already affecting or that will affect the money going into racing. It's, it's challenging for racing. And I think, you know, the consultation, as Joe mentioned, will go on for another 18 months. We could have a Labour government. I think Neil would love it if we had a Labour government in 18 months who might adjust this. And as you say, a lot is in the hands of the Gambling Commission. So there's a lot of variables that are moving, but we're already feeling the pain uh, for funding of racing. 
I mean, do you identify with what Joe said there, that the technology is simply not there and not in place to enact what the government are, are referring to as frictionless checks? I mean, it would contravene GDPR. It would, <laughs> it would, if we said the European Union, it would probably break about five rules from there. And, and as you say, I think the, finan the financial sector, there's no incentive for them to get on board with this. I think the government is keen uh, for, um, for financial services to help us in this and to have frictionless checks. Now, obviously, it's brilliant when we do get it, but it's a long, long way off. What do you do at Fitzdares? I want to bet with you. I want to bet £1,000, say. What do you do? Well, I need to set your inside leg measurement. I need you to come and have a cup of coffee with me. I mean, it does... I have to say, you put it beautifully, Nick, the last three or four years has been challenging for high-staking punters. And unfortunately, the lobby groups have pigeonholed high-staking with problem gambling. Unfortunately, I've got to be honest with you, high-staking punters fund UK racing. Uh, it's not five-pound punters that do, it's, it's high-staking punters that do. Some punters can give, in one year, 50, 60 grand to the levy. You know, that's fantastic for racing. Better than horse ownership. It's better than attending Ascot. It's real money going straight into the pocket of racing. So that's the challenge. And that punter would have to go through KYC, source of funds. Uh, but now the big watchword, of course, is affordability. It's not just if they have um, a lot of investments, they have a lot of money in the bank, they have a large salary. They've got to prove that that money is consistent. And we've got to constantly check that they still have that resource of funds to continue gambling with us. So you're not, I'm not just asking someone for the front of card and ID. I'm asking for bank statements, um, you, know, um, you know, mortgage statements every three months now for high staking clients. And that's just how we live. And that does, I know, we, I know a lot of people probably hype up the black market, but I think people are starting after three years of playing the game, they're getting bored of it and they want to go elsewhere. And we had a, a lengthy conversation on this show a few months ago with Andrew Rose, the chief executive of the Gambling Commission. And, and the, the big takeaway from that was his assertion that the betting industry was not mandated by the Gambling Commission to, to carry out these checks. What was your reaction to that? Well, they, I mean, you know, I have to tread carefully when I talk about the Gambling Commission. Um, they're, yeah, they're, that, and actually, on, on, that point, on that point, Will, this yeah. is why representatives of your, your industry, the, 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 the big... The are big corporations so, are, are so reluctant to say anything this week. Yeah. We've heard virtually nothing from Flutter, Entain, 888. I mean, that's why you've got the 10th biggest bookie in the UK coming to talk to you. I mean, frankly, most of the CEOs of, and this is not me being rude, most of the CEOs of those companies, they're really looking to America now. They're looking to the casino operations. I think of the top five bookies in the UK, they probably couldn't tell you who won jumps trainer of the season yesterday at Sandown. So that's, that's just the nature of bookmaking. It was built off racing, but now it's making its money elsewhere, which is part of the bigger question in all of this. But yeah, I mean, we live in, we live in fear of um, previous practices. I think a lot of the fines you see now are from kind of a post-lockdown era, which was a bit of a gold rush, rush for the big operators. But really, yes, there's a, there's a tension there. No line has been drawn in the sand for how operators can operate. And we do hope, post the consultation, there'll be clarity. I'm sure everyone in the Gambling Commission wants clarity as well, because you, it, you know, it makes their life easier. You were wearing your hair shirt, I thought, on, on Radio 4 earlier this it. week with, 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 with Evan Davis. You were, you, were, you, were, you were disarming him, uh, really, by, by conceding many of the errors that the, the gambling industry had made itself and um, these sort of self-inflicted wounds. 
to what extent do you feel at liberty to to post that critique of your of your bigger competitors? Because so much of your own business is actually horse racing, and none of your business yeah. is casino and slots. Um, yeah, I, absolutely. I think I think I made that reference on Radio Four. Technology turbocharged our industry, and it also you know, but, but bookies bookies are the villain. You know, that's our place. We don't mind it. Um, you know, I do feel like coming out the back of this UK and Irish horse racing needs to do a bit of a hugger bookie uh, session because good luck know, with we're, that. We're funding the industry, we, you know, we fund our OMG, we fund the race courses, we fund everything. And if we if you don't accept that, you're a bit clueless, to be honest, and living in cloud cuckoo land, and you don't want to bite that hand. So we need to come together and work this out. But yeah, I mean. It's it's a it's a challenge. It was challenging. We've made the industry's made made you know mistakes. You know, bookies always feel like punters are trying to take advantage of them. And when technology came 10, 15 years ago, we we got an opportunity really to to take bookmaking to a larger scale. If you're playing a million people, you, you know the casino will always win, and that's the nature of the beast. So, um, I, you know, I think the I think the industry as a whole and the BCG has accepted the mistakes and made. We don't want to be the villains of this piece. We want to continue funding sport to make it fun for everyone. We want gambling to be fun and safe. We don't want to be perceived as a nasty, silent corporate group. But I, to your point, Nick, we might be appearing that way this week. William Woodhams, thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks, Nick. Well, Woodhams, the chief executive of Fitstairs. Good morning, Lee Mottishead. Good morning, Nick Locke. What did you make of that? Um, I think it was a very reasonable assessment of where we are, but it just underlines that the situation in which we find ourselves is pretty depressing um, in many ways. Um, I think those points that, that Will made about bookmakers being painted as a villain are interesting because I think what this white paper does is reinforce the impression that has been painted in recent years by wide sections of the media and also by politicians that we shouldn't have a problem with problem gambling, we should have a problem with gambling. And I think that this white paper does reinforce the view that what a lot of people were doing on a sunny day at Sandown mm. yesterday was inherently dangerous and that the people doing that need some sort of state protection. And I find it really regrettable that we've reached the point where um, the activity, the perfectly legitimate activity of having a bet is somehow seen as wrong in principle. I want to talk about the, the solitary paragraph in the, the white paper that dealt with horse racing, Joe Slomero-Smith. Um, and going back to William Williams's point, is it time for the racing industry to, to hug a bookie? Well, we're working <laughs> together with the bookmakers probably better than we ever have done. I mean, I think historically there was always a slight feeling that we can't deal with those ghastly bookie chaps. And now, very much, they are in the room. They're in, you know, they're in the BHA offices. They're in discussions with the commercial committee. And we are talking about what the racing product looks like, how we work better together. And in fact, the government has really encouraged that. The government has said you need to work with the industry. So things like levy reform, mm -hmm. they have very much said we'd much rather that you work with the bookmakers than against them. But it was quite notable when that paragraph about levy reform came out in the, the white paper and the government made their commitment, reaffirmed their commitment to looking at reform of the levy. And we assume that that is to move towards a turnover-based model rather than a model based on 
based on gross profits. Are we right to assume that, first of all? Well, if you look at that paragraph, actually, it does say that it w it's not necessarily about moving no. to a turnover model. It might be. That's, that's what I mean. That's it, our assumption, isn't it? It might be. Well, this is what the industry is currently asking for. But if the government comes back to us and says, actually, we would prefer to give you an increase in the percentage of gross gaming revenue, I mean, ultimately, we, we want more money into the sport mm -hmm. uh, from the levy. And if the government says we're not look, prepared to look at a turnover model, are we going to turn down an increase in gross gaming revenue? No. But, but as soon as that came out, you saw bookmakers lining up to suggest that a turnover-based model wasn't necessarily good for the sport, good for punters. The battle lines are already being drawn, even set against your, your language of harmony, aren't they? I mean, clearly, I've had, you know, over the last two years, I've had these discussions with, mm. with the finance directors of bookmakers, mainly saying, well, how would the model look? The media rights uh, payments have mo largely moved to a turnover model over that time. And so they say, do you really want all your eggs in one basket? Um, I think that it's a bad look for the industry to uh, basically rely on the favourites being beaten for our revenues. Um, but What, from an integrity point of view, or do you just think it's no, an think un it's unstable source of finance? I think from a perception. So I mean, just talking to... You know, members of the public, when, when they find out what I do and describe, mm. they say, how does the money come into the sport? And I describe how the levy works. And they say, aren't you conflicted with that? And if you look at how we felt about Annie Power at the 2015 festival, when she fell, that was actually very good for the industry, but it was very bad for the sport in terms that we should not be cheering on a horse falling. When you said earlier that Corrick Ramblers winning the Grand National was bad for Levy, b bad for the sports finances as a whole, it is a, a curious juxtaposition, isn't it? Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons that so many people in the sport think that moving to a turnover model would be better. The other thing is it aligns us completely with the bookmakers. So if we grow the sport and we grow the turnover on it, yeah. then obviously we, we do better out of it. Currently, the, the model... Uh, essentially allows the bookmakers to gain things like bonuses and price boosts and things like that. And so a, a turnover-based model would actually be just cleaner for everybody. Okay, so that's what you're, you're still driving for. You are reaffirming the, your commitment. The industry's gambling strategy group would still prefer a turnover model. Okay. Um, what is that likely to generate? On your forecasting at the moment, is that turnover-based model going to close up well, the 40 million that we lost because of the affordability checks, allegedly. No, it entirely depends on what that, le what that level's set at. And obviously that is a matter of negotiation mm. with, with DCMS. And we obviously, the BHA team, uh, our government affairs team, is spending you know, all their what's time. A, what's, a, what's a realistic figure, do you think? Well, I think somewhere around 1.5% would, uh, would be very good for the industry. And that would probably bring in about another 25 million a year. It's still not 40 million that we're losing. No, is it? but if we then had the levy on overseas racing, which would bring in between about 15 and 20 million, that would close that gap. Why does British racing have a right to claim levy on bets on overseas racing? Uh, essentially, because that's what happens everywhere else. So, if you're in Australia or France or Ireland, if you if the punters there bet on British racing, then that money flows back into the, the into those countries, and yet it doesn't here. So, all we're asking is for a level playing field against other countries. But it, uh, isn't it the case in most of those countries that the reason that that money is flowing in is because they're betting on it, uh, through parimutuel systems? Uh, yes, well, not, in, not, in, not necessarily in Ireland or Australia, no. but, uh, but partly. But, but where um, the real money's generated. But, I mean, it, yeah. it is now a global sport, mm -hmm. and if you look at our bloodstock, we, are, we export that to lots of countries. It's, you know, it is a global product. 
I mean, I understand that some people would object to that, right. but in terms of bringing more money into the sport, it's a fairly simple way of, of getting an extra 15 to 20 million a year in. And I think politicians understand that that would be a, a fairly easy thing to do without primary legislation. I'm going to come back to relationships with politicians in a minute, because you've got plenty to say about politicians, haven't right. you, particularly in the context of this week? I just, I, you know... I, I, oh, before we start, I should actually correct, <laughs> Neil, um, mm. William Woodhams there, who suggested you wanted a Labour government. You might want a Labour government, but you don't want one <laughs> led by Keir Starmer. I don't like this flavour of Labour government very no. much. Uh, I mean, uh, in terms you of... You prefer Labour, an earthier flavour of Labour, in, in terms of Labour, I mean, Lucy Powell, the, who's the shadow DCMS, uh, she was interviewed this week, and she essentially said that she welcomed the white paper. They would pretty much do exactly what it said if they, they'd have come up with all these ideas six months ago if it was down to them. Uh, so I, th I think people thinking that... Uh, I, th I think it's definitely true that, uh, it, it, you know, this is unlikely that we're going to see a new gambling bill prior to the next general election, and so Labour will be left with this political decision. Do we dust off a piece of essentially Tory legislation uh, that's been written for us by the Tories and pass it as a Labour bill? Uh, or do we need to rewrite it? And then you get into some other... Um, I notice a few people are making this. I'll defend Keir Starmer very slightly here because uh, some people have been saying that, you know, well, Labour is going to be more pro-bookie because uh, Keir Starmer's leadership campaign was funded by Peter Coates. Of well, actually, it was you that sowed that idea into well, I mean, all uh, our minds. No, I week. think in the interview with Lucy Powell, the, 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 the person picked up on it and they were grilling her about that. Keir Starmer got 25 grand from Peter Coates, the, uh, the, the father of uh, Denise and John Coates of Bet365. Um, and that was for his leadership campaign. But at the time, of course, the Tories were well ahead in the polls and we thought that the Tories were going to pass the gambling bill. So I don't think it's certain that the reason that... Pe if Peter Coates wanted to give money to influence the way the gambling bill was working, he'd have given it to the Tories. You know, this was two years ago, more than two years ago. So um, I, I don't know about that, but I do think it's tricky for Labour. But I would say... I don't know whether you ever watch a news story and think to yourself, oh, God, there's lots of technical people giving lots of different opinions yeah. here. This is quite an interesting debate. Then you watch a news story about a subject that you actually know about, and you think, God, these people are idiots. They've invited, like, a panel of people <laughs> to talk about it. None of them know what they're talking about. I feel like with a lot of the politicians, uh, they don't really know about gambling, but they haven't really tried to find out about gambling. Um, and I, I think there's been... I mean, you know, we had, a, we had a, a, one of the Lords recently saying, um, you know, two years into this process, he stood up in the Lords and said, well, it's not going to affect racing very much because uh, this, all this legislation is just going to be about online betting. I mean, how, how can they, you know, how can they not? And that's a guy who's like a gambling reformer. I won't name him because, you know, they're all as bad as each other in lots of ways. But, uh, I mean, I don't know. I was approached by one, one politician on the DCMS committee um, suggesting that I might like to come in and talk to them about some of the issues and, and brief them on, um, you know, some of the things that they might not realise about. I tried about eight times to make an appointment. No, nothing ever happened. I didn't get to go in. I wanted to give up my time for free and try and help out because I want to see bookmaker operators, you know, put on the spot and ask the difficult questions. I want to see the Gambling Commission ask the difficult questions. Um, in terms of the Gambling Commission, just that before, because I know I slagged them off before, there was one thing I really wanted to say, which was, over the last two, two or three they, years... Do you know this week they, they released news that they, they'd won the award for best place to work? I did see work. that. I did see that. It looked Pen a fabulous Britain. place to work. I mean, they're not going to like it over the summer. They've got 60 reviews to be getting <laughs> on with. But uh, one thing I have noticed is that they're very 
busy in the last couple of years to trumpet these fines. And, uh, you know, every three months we get another fine. It's, you know, some company lets some bloke who's a nurse gamble 28 grand in 10 seconds or something, uh, and they get a huge fine for it. And the one thing that, as observers of that, we always think is, oh, God, not another one, and there'll probably be another one along in three months' time. I don't know why the Gambling Commission feel that this is showing them being a great organisation doing their job. For me, when I see it, I just think, well, how have the Gambling Commission not sorted this out? You know, they most of the operators will tell you that they don't give proper guidelines as to what kind of thresholds they're supposed to have, what kind of checks they're supposed to do. And, and this is half the battle. And, and, and they could do that, and they could clamp out a lot of those fines. So they're not making betting a better experience. And, of course, part of their remit, Lee, as well as ensuring people are safe and protected from gambling-related harm, quite rightly, I know you hate it when I say that, Neil, mm -hmm. but quite rightly... Yeah. Part of their remit is to make sure the gambling industry is healthy and robust and garnering as much money as possible for the exchequer. Yeah, that's right. But I, but I think, again, returning to the, the point I made at the, at, the, at the top, Nick, is I think the, the gambling commission, the perception of the gambling commission is that it's anti-gambling. Mm -hmm. which and is that a, shouldn't be the case. Of course it shouldn't be the case, no. But I think that is the case. And I think all their utterances, all their actions only serve to reinforce that view. I want to talk about racing's relationship with the bookmakers relative to customer service, Joe, and, and what the sport can do if it has got this now better relationship with the major operators. Is it, is it actually the case that the sport needs to apply pressure to the bookmakers to ensure that customer service is better? Because all you hear now is people saying, I can't get better, I can't operate the way that I want to operate as a day-to-day -day recreational punter and as Will Woodham said this is the lifeblood of our industry. Yeah I mean we are having those discussions with bookmakers I think for them a lot of the problem is that they don't have the guidance about what they can and can't do so a lot of them are just saying they're just being super cautious mm. about treating customers because if you have been fined 19 million and you're drinking in the last chance saloon the last thing you want to do is to say, OK, well, I'm going to make an exception for this punter um, and, then, and then get picked up in your next inspection on that. So, yes, we are, you know, yes, we are looking at, at anything we can do as an industry to mm. help. But ultimately, a lot of it needs to come back to the Gambling Commission. Did you apply pressure to try to get a situation where there were separate betting wallets so we could actually more clearly delineate what is horse race betting or sports betting and casino gaming? We, we did actually talk to the Gambling Commission about that, and they very quickly dismissed it. I think you had an interview with Andrew Rhodes. He, I, he, I, I asked him several times and, and to try to distinguish between the two, and he just pushed back and pushed back and pushed very back. Very early on, all our discussions with DCMS, and we do spend a lot of time having those discussions both with DCMS and, and the ministers, uh, and they really very much said, yes, we understand that horse racing is a less addictive product than slots, but ultimately, you've still got a huge audience and you've still got tens of thousands of people who have got problems gambling on horse racing. And our ultimate aim is to try and eliminate any problem gambling. So they just didn't buy it at all. And uh, so we, 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 you can only work with the hand, the hand that you're dealt. And so very much what, what our lobbying has been around uh, understanding that racing is going to be harmed by some of these things. And how do we mitigate that? Uh, you're someone who, who has done incredibly well in the, in the gambling industry, done incredibly well out of the gambling industry, and indeed you know, created a company that, that made slot technology. Absolutely. Um, well, the platform, actually. 
the platform. We didn't build the slots. Yeah. How, how does that sit with you? Are you quite comfortable with that? I, I'm absolutely of the view that um, it's much better to have a tax and regulated I mean, a product, mm -hmm. and that you use the money from that, that you, you do take, the, you know, for the people who have problem gambling, it's much better not to have a black market. But I absolutely recognise that, you know, I've, I've been working in a sin industry, and, th I mean, that's the reason that it's highly taxed. And I, I, my, some of my frustrations is when the point of consumption tax came in in 2012 was that the government didn't hypothecate some of that money into treatment centres, and the, very much the industry at that stage, really, they were pushing for a hypothecation of taxes. And one of the reasons that we've got to this point at the moment is that the government didn't really address the problem when they could have. And so you actually feel that <coughs> the industry should have seen what was coming down the road and acted more quickly to, to be more responsible back in, back in 2012. Were, were you an advocate for that at the time? Very much so, and I think that... Um, you know, there were, if, you, if you go back through and look, look at that time, there were some industry leaders saying to the government, look, we do recognise that there are problem gamblers here. They, will, they are going to need treatment, and how you fund that is something that needs to be looked at. And were you one of them? Um, yes, I was, actually, yes. Yeah. And I would say that you know, there were some egregious behaviour by bookmakers, and you know, Will Woodhams was talking about that on Radio 4. We can't just say there wasn't a problem. There was a problem. But we've also got to recognise that the problem exists in about 1% of punters. Mm -hmm. And you need to have a proportionate thing that says the 99% of people who do not have problem gambling issues should be able to get on and bet as they would like. And it's a question of can you use technology, can you use markers, markers of harm to get yourself to that position? And I think, I think you can. And I think that the sort of blanket approach that is coming in at the moment uh, affects quite a lot of those 99% of people uh, unnecessarily. It's, it's a blunt instrument, that's what I kept thinking. Well, I, d I, yeah. d I just, with the affordability stuff specifically, because they've come up with these fairly arbitrary figures uh, about, you know, at which point you'll have various investigations, but there's no mention about, and obviously there's further consultation, further consultation, further consultation, but I feel like the affordability stuff is the hardest thing to sort out. Because you know, it doesn't matter what number you come up with for uh, the, the triggering a, an affordability test, but surely you've got to look at what people spend and what their personal circumstances are. Mm. You know, a, a guy earning a hundred grand a year on paper can afford to lose quite a lot gambling. But uh, what, you know, if you've got two guys and one of them's got four kids and, a, and a, an ex-wife and the other guy's a single man, you know, who's and then older people, they sort of they say. A lot of older people say to me, "Well, I've done these affordability checks. I, you know, all these boomers with like six houses and stuff. They say, <laughs> well, I've got loads of loads of capital, but I don't have much income. So they're only letting me bet quite small amounts. Uh, but actually, you know, I'm quite a rich person. I'm retired. I, you know, I like to bet on the horses. My average stake is a hundred pounds or whatever. Now I'm having to bet twenty pounds, thirty pounds because." of an affordability check. It's also changing the way people bet, I think. I noticed the Gambling Commission in a thing that came out earlier in the year seemed to be praising the companies for moving to a more, I don't know how to describe the model, I, I don't like to use the term, but maybe a sort of plankton-fed model. You know, the way that 365 changed the way their business worked some years ago, where they just got hundreds of thousands of smaller people betting in multiple bets 
you know, long shot bets, bets with high margin for the bookmakers, as opposed to people betting in reasonably large singles. Uh, most people that you speak to that have been through affordability will say, well, the problem is that, you know, I, I bet three or four horses on a Saturday, they're favourites, I have £100 on each one. You know, quite often the first couple lose, the next couple win. Uh, and just in the fluctuations of the day, it's easy to trigger an affordability even though you're breaking even, essentially, or not really losing very much. If you start betting on 20 to 1 chances, 33 to 1 chances, you're much more likely to be a loser in the long run. Well, that is where, for the moment, we have to draw this conversation to a, to a conclusion. Are you a... Would you not count as a boomer? Uh, I'm Gen X, mate. Gen X? <laughs> very firmly Gen X. I'm clinging in there. Welcome back. You're watching Luck on Sunday. My thanks to Joe Somerose Smith, Lee Mottishead, Neil Channing, still with us. And joined on the sofa now by a man who yesterday was crowned champion conditional jockey. A sparkling season, riding so many winners for a stable that has had just a great time of it. That of Ben Pauling. He is, of course, Luca Morgan. Luca, well done and thanks for coming in. Thank you. No, uh, good to be here. And uh, like you said, a great season. Great season for Ben and really good to be a part of it. The man on your right was sort of clapping <laughs> away when I was giving the introduction. You have, when you've been able to get a bet on, you've made a few quid backing his horses. This I've, season, I've been, I mean, I've always been a bit of a Ben Pauling fan. I don't know why. He's always been nice to me when he's come on here. But uh, yeah, they've had an amazing year, haven't they? Really, and uh, you know, mostly thanks to Luca, of course. Nothing to do with Ben. <laughs> what we'll talk about the yard a little bit first, Luca. What's been the secret, do you think, behind the success of the stable this season, particularly? Well, you say we'll come to the yard in a minute, but it. it Probably is just that. Um, like you saw when Ben first started training, he was training a lot of good horses straight away and uh, Grade One winners, Festival winners, and um, he, as he got more horses, he probably didn't have the yard to train that many horses, um, and they weren't running as well as they should have been for a couple of years. Um, and as they moved into the new yard, it's um, you know it's got back to where it should have been, and um, it's really good to see. Is it a completely different setup? Is it t taking it to a to another level? Yeah, like this yard is is purpose built to train racehorses. Mm -hmm. you, you know, there's a lot of trainers that, are, well, every trainer is training on a farm that they've put stables on. If that makes sense, um, this is you know the horses are so healthy because everything is designed about uh, around the health of the horses and um, keeping them as fit as possible. And your your own trajectory has been a, a pretty Im impressive one. When you when you began this season, what expectations did you have? My expectations weren't very high, if I'm honest. Um, not not of myself or of the yard or anything like that, but um, I'm one of the heavier lads and everything. So being champion conditional wasn't something that I ever thought would, um, you know, come my way because I was there was always some horse I couldn't ride and I was never having a lot of rides because of it. Mm -hmm. um, but because Ben's had such a good time of it and so many winners, um, I've almost got away with it, if that makes sense, and um, it's balanced out great for me. But no, like you said. The season started really great. I thought I was just having a good summer. And uh, thank God it, it kept going all winter, which was really good. So it's almost come on you by surprise. I mean, most ch conditionals who, who win the championship, they've been you know, drilled from the outset. They'd, you know, in the old days, they'd be with Dave Roberts. He'd have had them a, you know, X many winners before Christmas, and we're going to win the championship. You, it, it's, quite, it's quite refreshing, really. It's all, all, all happened incidentally rather than as a... Uh, you've actually gone out there to, to win this championship. Yeah, like, and I, I was kind of in second leaving the summer into the winter and we'd almost joke about it in the yard and have a bit of a laugh and 
um, all your catching, whoever was in front and what have you, and um, just every month. Then it got to Christmas and it was a little bit less of a joke and got to March and it was like, you know, we, we could probably do this. And um, I'm so pleased. I mean, it's great for myself, but it's also great for the yard and great for Ben. Um, just so pleased that his faith in me has kind of been repaid in, in a way. And yesterday you were able to just reflect and enjoy it a little bit. How did how did that feel to sort of receive the, the congratulation of your peers and of the big crowd at Sandown? Yeah, it was massive. Um, all my family were there and uh, all of Ben's family were there. And, it, and it, I was just... When you go to an event at a moment like that and obviously accepting the award and everything, everything like that yesterday, um, it makes you kind of realise that when you're going out every day, it's bigger than you think, if that makes sense. Um, like there was no day where I thought, right, I need to... If I don't win today, then I've got no chance. Um, I was always going racing just and just enjoying it. And, um, you know, every single day counts up to the big day in the end. 46 winners. You bolted up in the end. Yeah, I'm not sure <laughs> what... Bolted, <laughs> hard health, <laughs> easing down. No, I'd, uh, yeah, if I, can, if I can get that next year or, or 50 next year, I'd be a, be a happy man. So how do you see the rest of your career playing out? And I ask that advisedly because people will be thinking, oh, he's only at the beginning of his career, give it a break. But as you said... You're, you're not a really, really light jockey. You're not someone who's going to be putting yourself through several hundred rides a year. How are you going to manage it and curate it? Um, I, when I turned conditional, I, well, I might not have been, but I always felt I was very ready. Um, did a lot of pony racing, a lot of point-to-pointing, and as I turned conditional and moved to Benz, I never, I never felt like I wasn't ready to do anything. Um, and I have my claim is slowly, you know, it took it's took me a while to write up my mm. claim, and um, so you built steadily. Yeah, like I've been conditional for two or three seasons, or maybe even four, um, and every year it just seems to have got better and better. So I feel like now that I've lost my claim, I'm I'm ready to, you know, to ride as a professional, and um, you know, hopefully I can find my place doing so. Um, has being a jockey what you always wanted to do? Yeah, um, big time. So when I was just a little kid. Um, I was just watching horses walk around the village and convinced my mother and father to take me to, to riding lessons when I was when I was very young and, and they kept taking me. Um, and yeah, I could do with a few lessons now, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and I never looked back. And since I started pony racing, there was never oh, could I be a jockey. I, I just assumed that one day I would. It, there was no there was no no question for me. And and you don't know what it was that that sparked your interest in the horses in the first place. No, I just enjoy watching them walking around and trotting around the village and thought I'd fancy to go at that. And, um, thought it looked fun. Yeah, thought it looked fun and, yeah, it's a bit of a laugh. And your brother's followed in your footsteps? Yeah, Bo, yeah, my brother Bo, he's riding really well at the minute. Um, he's at Ben's kind of doing what I was doing a few years ago and um, it's good because I can see exact. I can kind of see myself from what, what he's doing wrong and, or doing right even. Um, but he, he started riding a lot later than me. Um, didn't really start riding until he was 14. Um, and it came quite quite quickly to him when he was when he was younger and I was riding. You just take the mick the whole time um, about how I was a bit of a ponce and all this. Um, <laughs> but uh, now he's um, now he's loving it and he's doing really well. So um, yeah, it's good. And he's very proud of you. Yeah. Um, um, judging by yeah. his tweet last night, which was which was lovely. Yeah, that's one no. for you. That's one for you to screen grab and, and make sure you keep yeah. for those for those <laughs> moments when you know. <coughs> Yeah, no, we get on really well, me and Bo, and um, really supportive of each other. We're, we're very competitive at the same time, but um, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I'll, I'll keep that tweet for a rainy day. In terms of the the horses you've ridden this season, which which ones excited you the most? Uh, Shake 'em Up Harry is 
he is a very good horse. It, I don't. Everything seems to go right on the day, and for some reason we haven't quite cracked it yet to land a big one with him. Um, I still don't know the answer to how we're going to land the big one with him, but um, so I don't know what trip he wants. Yeah, I don't think he does either. So um, <laughs> I'm sure we'll have fun finding out anyway. And uh, just riding him, he just feels like does everything so easy. Um, and yeah, just it'd be very satisfying if he could just win a big one. Well, you won your own big one yesterday, conditional uh, champion of 2022-2023. These were the other winners, and I don't think there's too many surprises amongst this list. Paul Nichols, champion trainer for the 14th time. Brian Hughes, champion jockey for the third time in four years. Luca, you know. And JP McManus, who had a treble yesterday at Sandown, including with John Bon, was the champion owner. So not too many surprises there, Lee. Least of all, P.F. Nichols winning his 14th <laughs> trainer's championship. Uh, he was relentless this year. He attacked the season with a, an extraordinary appetite and sense of purpose. Yeah, and he, he does it from day one right through to the closing day of the season. What's so laudable about him is that his, his uh, line of attack is throughout the whole campaign. You know, every Saturday you can guarantee that Paul will be focusing big horses on big races. Um, I think we maybe almost become a little bit blasé mm. about how good he is. Um, but he's enormously consistent. Um, as we've said many times before, Nick, he is fantastic with the media. And I say that because the media is the medium between participants and fans. And he gets that. Mm. Um, I, do, I do think, Lee, as well, a, a marker of this is whether participants will engage with you when things aren't going so well yeah. and and in fairness and look everyone's a sing when you're winning merchant yeah. but in fairness to to Paul Nichols if there's a situation that is tricky a bit like the brave man's game situation yeah. the last mm. couple of weeks he has engaged where it's been possible for him to engage and I think that's the measure of someone who's actually a good communicator it absolutely is and he's also someone who will accept criticism from the media when it when, doesn't come very often but when it does he accepts it and he doesn't take it to heart, doesn't hold it against you, which, is, which can be quite rare. Well, he probably does, but only for about 30 yeah. seconds. For about 30 <laughs> seconds, yeah. <laughs> um, yesterday as well was, was an example of his, of his hunger to succeed because after that final race at Sandown, there was confusion that went on for about 90 minutes about whether he'd broken his, his own, own record. record. For rec and at first we thought he hadn't, and then we thought he had, and then we thought he hadn't, and then we knew he had. I think he was going through that same process yeah. of have I or haven't I? And the fact that he was so desperate yeah. to do that, it's just a, it's a record, it's a number, but the fact he was so keen to do that just underlines his appetite to succeed. Funnily enough, your boss, Ben Pauling, he wears his ambition... You know, quite lightly in some ways, but as I was walking out of Sandown with him yesterday and said what a good season it had been, I could see he was restless to get on to the next one and better the target and get more good horses. Yeah, he wasn't sort of saying... Yeah, no, Ben... Yeah, my job's done. Yeah, he's always looking to kind of improve. He's always at the sales and always just things like that, very active. And um, No, he's... Yeah, I think Ben, he, he always wants more and I don't think he'll be content until he kind of has everything, if that makes sense, but... Um, no, he, he, we, like, our best season was 44 winners. Mm -hmm. um, I think we made it to 80, 84 this That's year. That's a pretty remarkable um, jump, isn't but it? But I know he was really keen to get to 88 to double his best season. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> he'd be gutted about that. But, um, gutted. Yeah. Let no one ever say what's in a number. Yeah. They'll find any excuse to try and set themselves a 
set themselves a massive, yeah. massive challenge. Uh, the, the other point I noticed mm. from a from a betting point of view, Neil, mm. is this devil stakes profit that that Nichols recorded this season. Charles, are we going to say Ben Pauling? Ben Pauling stable is incredible. If you we know you chasers. love Ben Pauling now, if you, you just can... bet the chasers. It's incredible. <laughs> they never seem to lose. It's incredible. Um, sorry, I did, Paul Nichols. Yeah, I mean that is amazing as well. That's particularly should, given how many short price favourites. Yeah, you should he has. do your brains following a stable with so many exactly. runners. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I just thought that the thing about breaking the prize money thing was, you know, if you sort of had to name the top six Paul Nichols money earners this year, I might struggle to come up with it. He hasn't got like superstars like he's had in the past. Well, um, I mean, they're not terrible. I'm not obviously, but he's got such a breadth of horses. Mm. That's where he's he's won it, I think. And it's uh, yeah, he's brilliant at sort of picking his fights, isn't he? As well, he doesn't. Uh, you know, I sort of felt like going into Cheltenham that he wasn't going to have a great Cheltenham because he'd had such a good time in the run-up and it's hard to kind of keep peaking them and whatever. And then he had well, a good Cheltenham anyway. The rhetoric shifted slightly, didn't it, from it's not the be-all and end-all to it's not the be-all and end-all <laughs> except when it is the be-all and end-all. And the horse well, it looked the be-all be and end-all when he was running well, around after, uh, the, after, the, uh, after the winners, yeah. Um, rather less demonstrative in his victory celebrations is Brian Hughes though no less an important figure, even though he doesn't strut the big stage that often, Lee. He's um, become a byword, not just for reliability, which would be damning him with faint praise, but for excellence in and out of the saddle. That's right. I mean, there are some people who rather um, turn their nose up at him and they say, look, this is a guy who hasn't ridden a great one winner since 2018. Um, He doesn't take part in the Cheltenham Festival. He's not a fixture in fitting on the biggest days. But Brian Hughes is an incredible grafter. Uh, he's enormously talented, and he plays to the rules with which, under which the championship is written. The championship doesn't dictate that jockeys have to earn the most prize money or have to win the most Grade One races. Mm. It rewards labour. And you're happy with that? Um, I think, yeah, I think I am. I, th- I think. Um, there is something incredibly praiseworthy about individuals who go day in, day out, up and down the country. Um, it, it underlines, I think, the fact that whilst we're going through this whole premierisation process at the minute, whilst we, we want to shine a light on the sport's biggest events, racing is a sport that takes place every day of the week. Yeah. And by, by, by rewarding the champion jockey on number of wins, it emphasises that those days at Stratford and Plumpton and and, and Musselburgh and Sedgefield are important. And if you're talking about reward for industry, graft, hard endeavour, mm. look no further than the winner of yesterday's Bet365 Gold Cup, Kitty's Light, because what a horse he's been. The Ida Chase at Newcastle. That does most horses for a year oh. and a half. <laughs> yeah. The Scottish National, and then a week later this. Yeah. He has his own way of doing it, but it's very, very effective, Luther, isn't it? Yeah, he's great. Um, I think Jack's just so good in him as well. Like, you watch Kitty's like jump round. He, he can't jump really. He, um, <laughs> like if a horse that wins yeah. these big staying chases, he, he's awful. Um, but I, I remember watching the Scottish National and he jumped the last so bad, but he made two legs doing it. Um, like you said, he's got his complete own way. Jack knows that, so he's um, you know, more than happy to let him do it. And he's one of those. You, I mean, you must separate these horses into two categories. Horses that find their way of doing it and never really look like they're going to fall. I don't know how it feels. 
and horses that might be great jumpers but are quite regular fallers. Yeah, I suppose the, the ones that look great are they're so fine margins. Like, remember Bouvardaire when he was he was so slick and everything and then you wonder he got an absolute pearler in Cheltenham. But that's just because he's on the limit all the time, whereas Kitty's like, you know, you can always brace yourself because you know exactly what he's going to do um, and normally take it with him, but it seems to be working anyway, so wouldn't and mind, it, wouldn't mind to go. It's quite obvious the confidence the rider has in him and he has in the rider. It was another great victory for, for Christian Williams, who, as we said last week, with his family have been enduring a, a very difficult and challenging time with uh, their daughter Betsy's leukaemia diagnosis, and he spoke very movingly about that yesterday. Jack Tudor has been by Christian Williams' side for as long as he can just about remember. Jack, we, we spoke yesterday a little bit about, about when you first rode Kitty's light, how old he was, how old you were. It's been a, it's been a marriage made in heaven, this, really. Yeah. Um, no, he's been, um, he's been a great horse for me, and... Um, I just like it for the horse this year that he, he's actually managed to go and win, win a couple of nice nice big races. He's um, he's always kind of been a, the unlucky horse, whereas this year we've got him into a winning groove and, um, you know, he, he's just lucky enough that he's knocked out a couple of big races for us. What, what struck me yesterday was when you said that you, you could really tell that he'd had quite a hard race the previous week, yet he still delivered it for you. Yeah, um... <laughs> I mean, he was probably it's probably a better performance yesterday. Um, you know, knowing that he was definitely definitely tired from the week before, it was probably you know ten hours up and ten hours back overnight for you know for uh, two days, and then you know a four mile chase. Um, then he got brought down in here, so he definitely had a hard race in here. That's for sure, and um, it just proves how proves how tough he is that he, he was managed to back it up yesterday. And only seven. What does it mean to you that you're now associated with a horse that's become almost a cult figure for for real fans of national hunt racing? Yeah, no, it's brilliant to be um, you know to be part to be part of um, part of his journey. Then he's um, I think he's picked up a, an unbelievable following now, and, and he's definitely a horse that people talk about. Um, he's got his own ways; he's a little bit different, but um, he's a very good horse when he when he puts it all together. He's a he's a wonderful horse, and he's been pretty exquisitely trained as well in terms of getting these these big prizes in the bag. What do you think Christian Williams does that enables horses to be able to to deliver in this fashion? Um, probably just runs them more than anything. Um, you know, horses can't always be in be in the best form of their lives twelve months of the year. It's, just, it's not it's not possible. So you know, when the horse probably isn't in brilliant form at the start of the season, and and we're running over three mile because. You know, that there's not races to suit early on. He's running well and picking up prize money without, you know, he's not having a hard race over three mile because, you know, he's a four miler and then, you know, you just run him down to, you know, to a weight he's able to win off then. And, um, you know, when he gets in his winning groove and gets a bit of sun on his back and the ground comes good, he's able to, um, you know, he's able to go and win, win nice races. But, uh, you know, probably, that's probably why, you know, why he goes and wins races. It's just the fact that we... You know, we, we keep running and we, we don't leave him in the stable. And, um, yeah, no, no, pretty straightforward. <laughs> Welcome back. It was just a huge pleasure earlier in the week to head to Newmarket to the British Racing School to spend a bit of time with this year's cohort on the Racing Media Academy. The Academy was set up last year and produced some wonderful results with so many placements 
and, and employees throughout the industry at a, at a high level already. Really pleased that Lee and I can be joined by Ashley Wichard, who you might remember from winning the Magnolia Cup last year and is now on the uh, academy. And uh, Jack Reddy, who has uh, graduated from Liverpool University. Uh, Edge Hill University. Uh, yeah, Edge Hill University last year, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and is on the course as well. Um, guys, how are you enjoying it? Yeah, it was a fantastic week, really good. Um, as I say, I graduated in media, film and television from Edge Hill. Um, and obviously with the obsession with horse racing that I've got, those two sort of just uh, fuse, it's like a fusion together for me uh, of those two things. So yeah, it was a fantastic week. Um, I loved meeting yourself on Monday previously and Lee and Lydia uh, later on in the week. It was, it was really good. Now, actually, Lee and Lydia actually put you guys to work. We had a great, <laughs> we had a great chat on Monday, but these guys, these guys got you working. Oh, I have so much respect for, for these guys because for me, it was the most challenging. Um, it took me back to the classroom where I was sort of sat there thinking, what do I do? And everybody else has got pen to paper and going for it. So that was challenging and actually quite emotional. Um, but I feel like I've learned so much more from that situation because that was out of my comfort zone. So, you know, this, this has just been the best experience for me. There are quite a lot of people who have recently graduated or recently come out of school. You've been working in the industry for, for a little bit of time and you won the Magnolia Cup, as I was saying. So for you, it's a slightly different experience, yeah. this, isn't it, to, compared to everybody else? Yeah, I, I mean, as I said, it, I'm coming from it from working in the industry. So to, to appreciate and understand what goes on behind the scenes, how, uh, how the, you know, the, the racing production is all put together was, I mean, it's so complex. And for you, Jack, so you loved horse racing. Where did your interest in the sport really start so i looking back now i think it was my granddad he had his he had, often had his head in, in the racing post um, and he took me to to aintree we used to go on the thursday of the aintree meeting um and the fact that i could turn one pound into 20 or 30 whatever <laughs> whatever it did um i think that was i got hooked on that day mm-hmm. um that's where hindsight I, I know i got hooked on that day and um obviously i don't come from from a racing background like ashley um i i, I don't have much hands-on experience with the horse um, but I love reading the form. Um, I love solving the puzzle, as it were. Um, so yeah, I don't come from that sort of background originally, but um, I'm quite happy to be in now. But it's hooked you in lots of different ways, has it? What What's been different for you about this week? What have you been able to experience in the last few days that you hadn't been able to to experience before? So as I say, the hands-on stuff for mm-hmm. me. So we went to Dalham Hall, which is an incredible facility. Um, we see in perfect power. Um, Space Blues, some of the some of the newer stallions on their roster. So yeah, so obviously I've been in the classroom in university studying media, but then to to get that together with the hands on um, with the horse, um, I think that's given me a perfect blend to hopefully go on and uh, have a nice career in in the sport. So do, do you think there's a possibility that 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 is something that might might grab you more actually working more down the horse side of it, or are you absolutely set on coming and doing this? Um, I wouldn't be sure yet. I hope I can be an all-rounder in the end. Um, but yeah, definitely, I think um, I've got a lot of respect for, for people like Ashley who are working with these animals every day. Um, and that, re- that respect's only been, only been heightened this week by, uh, obviously, as I say, going to Dalham Hall and seeing the care that these animals, that, that these animals do receive. Um, so yeah, as I say, I hope to be an all-rounder in the sport by, by the end. It's, it, it's, I'm sure Lee will agree with me. These guys were an incredibly engaging group to, yeah. to talk to and, and speak spend a bit of time with yeah it's it's a it, from a selfish sense it's a wonderfully rewarding experience 
um, because they they were such a great group of people. They are such a, a great group of people, people who've come from uh, different backgrounds in terms of interest and, and knowledge in the sport. You, you, you've got um, you've got people who've loved it all their life, people like, like Jack who's had his nose in the racing post all his life, people like Ashley who actually spend days, day-to-day -day experience with, with, with horses, to people who it's a relatively new thing, but they have a, a real interest in the sport. And what was what was great from the session that we had on, on Thursday, Lydia and myself, and Lydia's just an incredibly good teacher, um, what was great was that they all wanted to learn. And it wasn't just a case of us saying, oh, you're all wonderful. You know, we were, we were trying to show them things that they would need to do in a, in a racing media career. We were pointing out where there was room for them to improve in, in certain areas, but they, they took that on board. Um, and hopefully, after all the sessions they've had this week with so many different people, um, you'll feel that you've at least, you know more now than you did before. Mm. To what extent, actually, for you, when you when you won the Magnolia Cup and there was all this attendant media interest and we were all ringing you up and getting it and you were great on camera, to what extent did that give you the the motivation to to go into sort of this this part of the industry to use your communication skills? I think I'd like to shed light on the stuff that you don't see as much. Um, obviously, most of the time I'm in the stables. Mm. Uh, so going into Sandown through the main entrance was a very strange experience. <laughs> it was like being in an airport. <laughs> it's like, where Turn am I? <laughs> so did I go? Um, but I'd, I would love to be able to, with the skills I've learned, highlight more of the stable staff, more of what goes on with the horses. More of that day-to-day. -day. Yeah. yeah. All the hard work that goes into getting the horse to the races. You know. I saw a, a piece that Michael Andrews, who works for the for the Jockey Club, had, had done a very small stable taking a horse to the races, and it was absolutely brilliant. Mm -hmm. Just the uh, and just the care that goes into getting one animal there. Yeah, but taking taking it back to the basics. I mean, highlighting you know, for instance, grooms spend a lot of money, their own money, on their grooming kits. Mm. So you see all these horses being turned out beautifully, and a lot of time that's because the groom has gone and bought products for that horse or for you know for their job um, and I don't think people are aware of that and it's just little things that I think might make a bit of a difference. So you want to tell the story and you want to tell stories that perhaps we're not telling enough yeah. as things stand. Yeah because it, w without the stable staff you don't have racing and, and it, but at the same time you know you have to have your owners and your trainers but the racing the stable staff are so important and I think I'd just like to be able to highlight that as well. People may remember that you took the knee before the Magnolia Cup. Yeah. And it generated a, a, a remarkable amount of, of reaction within the sport and outside it. Um, how do you feel about the reaction that that got? It was, it was overwhelmingly positive. Really positive, really positive. I'd, I'd set myself up thinking, right, OK, big girl pants on, because this might not go, <laughs> you know, pleasantly. Um, so you were pleasantly was, surprised? Yeah, yeah, and the the comments and just the support I've had since, yeah, it's been it's been great. Funnily enough, what really struck me, and it was only Monday when I came to you, and you'd only been in a night, mm -hmm. um, was how you all seemed to be getting on so well. You were all pretty good friends within a few hours. Yeah, the group, as Lee was saying, is such a diverse group. 
Um, obviously, me coming from from the north of England, we've got Michael also from north, and then we've got we've just got such a good mix, um, such a good mix of people, and um, I think we are going to keep in contact basically forever now. Um, as uh, Josh Appiaffi was saying last year's group, um, they they message all the time, they they're networking between between themselves, so it's nice to have that support network of people who've been through the same the same as you. I don't want to sound like ridiculously cheesy, Lee. Yes, it's important for all of us that we get brilliant young minds in racing and cast the net as, as, as wide as we can. But there is something, if nothing else, that's quite glorious about the idea that you make friendships through this sport, you know, that it can, it can provide you with a shared love that, 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 get, that gets you loads more friendships. Yeah, it can create those, those strong friendships. Like I feel like Ashley, with their experience, working hands-on with the horse, and me, obviously, coming from the more media backgrounds, me and Ashley can bounce off each other. Mm. And then we've been able to help each other all week, basically, with questions. We've got a few members of the group that are just into the, the camera work and not the horse racing side at all, really. So we've been able to, to uh, explain what a handicap means, for example, and things like that to those, to those newer members. Um, are you feeling quite comfortable now on the sofa? Uh, I am, yes, actually. Yeah. Uh, have, you watched, have you I relaxed watched, into the Yeah, I watched from the gallery. The scene. Um, obviously, I've seen a professional do it. So, uh, so who, yeah. Who? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, no, I'm feeling com uh, comfortable. And they unassumingly assembled big race CVs that would be the envy of so many. Michael and Richard Hills joining me here in the studio. Gents, great to see you both. Looking, looking well, looking happy and enjoying new careers now, Michael. You're... You're with William Haggis. Richard's still very much involved with with Shadwell. How do you reflect, Mike? First of all, on on those on those years in the saddle together as well. Yeah, it was, it was great fun. Um, you know, uh, we dreamed uh, when we were kids. Dad was uh, started training that would be jockeys, and uh, we were very small. And it, you know, it was our it was our, our dream, and uh, we we managed to achieve it. And the great thing was that we sort of were quite level. You know. Uh, I was doing well, Richard was doing well, and you know, it was, a, it was a good, solid career. And obviously people are intrigued by the bond that, that twins have, how you grow up, how you, how you develop. Was it from day one obvious that this was the path that, that you were going to take, Richard? Well, we figured out pretty early that we weren't doing very well at school. <laughs> and we were smaller than everybody else. Who was, be who was better? Or were you, were you pretty much the same in every respect? We were pretty much the same. Um, you know, probably... My mother would always say that we probably didn't try that hard. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was obvious that, you know, the path we were going to take, and plus we were in a, you know, a great position where, you know, Dad was training, and, you know, there was 100 horses outside the house, and that's all we wanted to do, really. He is a legendary figure, Barry, um, in, in every respect. He's an absolutely remarkable survivor, but evidently a hard taskmaster. What was what was it like growing up as as his sons, but also aspiring jockeys in a in a racing context? Well, we tried to keep out of the way a bit, <laughs> but um, no, he was great, you know. And, and I obviously went and rode for him for a long time, and Richard rode. But I was he was my main sort of fifteen, eighteen years. Um, he was tough, but he was very fair. And once he said something, and you you certainly knew when he when he was not happy, um, it was forgotten, and you move on. Mm. And yeah, what, what about as as young children? Was he was he present much, or was it just all about the racing and? No, he you know owners and you know we we sort of as I said we kept a low profile, um, but he used to love what come and watching us on the ponies and we used to follow them up the string, and uh, we had a jockey's table, and um, 
we used to race basically every 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 morning. Uh, quite expensive ponies, but they soon learn how to be racehorses. Um, and one day, one of them got under the stores, didn't it? Yeah. yeah. So is it? Yeah. Each day, though, you know, we followed up and used to ride a finish and everything else. And then, sort of, uh, when Dad employed Steve Cawthon, was sort of like our where we had to. We knew we were at school, but we needed to get out of school because there was a lot more happening back at home. Uh, and that sort of got us really going then, uh, when we were just sort of 14 and a half, 15, um, and made that's you know sort of made the change and you know the the, the career that we were going to take. Yeah, because the whole place just became a a more exciting, you know, glamorous environment. I would imagine. What was it like having Cawthon there? Brilliant. Uh, Steve, when Steve first came over, he won the Guineas Tap on Wood, and then Dad's horses just they just went off form. So Steve wasn't getting that many rides, so we got him a pony, and so we used to go up to a, a great friend of ours called Charlie Nelson, and we used to go up to his paddocks, and we used to race them, and it was great. I mean, he, and Steve, uh, when he first came, he bought this fantastic box of kit, as in goggles, whips, all the sort of American stuff. And so every time we rode a winner or rode against him, it was like, can I have a helmet, or can I have a pair of goggles, or a croup boots, or they were a big thing. So, but Steve was fantastic, and he was a young, you know, he's a, sort of only a couple of years older than us. Um, but it, he was, he taught us a lot. And good company. Oh, great, yeah, yeah, top man. I mean, it struck me that you, you, you began your, your careers in, and we've talked about it quite a bit on this programme with, with, with various people, in that golden era, really. You know, Piggott was still in his first incarnation then, and you had Carson and Swinburne and Cawthon, and I'm sure I'm leaving Eddery and I'm sure I'm leaving plenty out besides. What was it like going into that environment? Well, it was amazing because, you know, obviously Pat was riding for Peter Warren, was just down the road. Willie Carson was in and out the house all the time. Lester was obviously dipping in and out when he had a, you know, a horse that he wanted to ride. <laughs> so, and, and uh, you know, my godfather was Greville Starkey. Was he really? So, you know, we, we were surrounded by them, and they were, they were like our heroes anyway. Uh, Willie Carson always said that, you know, of all those names... He may not have been ever considered the best jockey of all of them, but Starkey was the best judge of a horse. He was by far the best judge. Uh, and he was when we moved to uh, Newmarket shortly after we left school, he sort of took, a, took us under his wing, really, you know, and drove us around, made sure we got to the races and introduced us to everybody. And, uh, and basically, well, I worked at Tom Jones, where Greville start, where he started. So he put us all on the, you know, on the straight and narrow. And Tom Jones, really, that was your was that your link to to Sheikh Hamdan? Yeah, I mean, at the time, uh, Michael was very fortunate. In his first ten rides, he rode six winners. So it took me about fifty rides to ride my first winner. Are you sure it wasn't just because he was better? Possibly at the time, and then <laughs> he, he had an accident uh, ride now and hurt his hand, and uh, that, uh, I got on one of his rides, and that was my first winner, Border Dawn, for Jeremy Hindley. So the paths sort of, uh, Dad, at the end of that year, he said to us, bright boys, you know, you can stay here uh, or we can get you jobs in Newmarket. Well, you know, we thought Newmarket is the, the place to be, you know, 1,500 horses, and uh, we decided to move to Newmarket, and that's well, where we went. Time to spread your wings. I was joking, but there is a, there is a sort of serious subtext to it. You, you're, very, you're clearly very close. You've, you've had amazing careers, You've got very comparable CVs in terms of achievement, slightly different, but you know, won lots of big races. Was there, 
difficult internal competition between you at times when one of you was doing really well and one of you wasn't going so well? No, um, I remember when we first started, <coughs> we overheard a conversation and said that the trouble is one's going to be better than the other. And we just both looked at each other and went, no, that's not going to happen. You know, I knew how he could ride, he knew how I could, I could ride him. You know, we, 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 you know, we were going to get out and then do it, make sure we weren't going to be like that. And, um, you know, it, but that did stick with us. Did it? And it, did, did it spur you on? Did for, it, for sure. Did it really motivate you to be yeah. e even better? Yeah, and, and, you know, when we rode together, I didn't really know where Rich was in the race, but, you know, when you're out, out of contention, you, I'd always look up or look around to see where he was. And luckily, he was generally in blue and white, so it was handy to pick him out. <laughs> And quite often, <laughs> quite near the front, because that's the, front. that's the way the boss liked it, liked it done, wasn't it? Well, that's right. But also, there's another good thing, is that, you know, if Michael was riding a lot of winners, because he couldn't tell us apart, they didn't really think one of, either one was having <laughs> a bad time, you know? So you could reflect on that. There was at least two of you had two chances of winning a race. So, so you actually played on the, the, the general stupidity of most people to not be able to... Who was who. We played on being twins as much as we possibly yeah. could, you know, with owners, uh, you know, because it, it, it was too difficult when an owner come and say, well done, Michael, well done, Richard, to explain if he said the wrong one. I mean, when Michael won the um, Abbey for Robert Sankster, um, uh, <coughs> I went out and got the trophy and nobody knew because he was getting changed <laughs> to catch the plane home. And that can only have been one of about 5,000 occasions when you did this. That's right. We did it once at Ascot with Sheikh Hamdam. He, he spotted it straight away. Uh, he just said, there's a, there's a ringer. He's the wrong one. <laughs> like that. He, was, he was quick. Did you actually go, what, you tried to go and ride one of his horses? No, I was going to get the trophy. Because oh. <laughs> Richard was getting ready. We were going to kick, you know, try and beat the last race. So we went quick, go out and get the trophy like we did in, in France. Um, and, uh, and he spotted it straight away. Did, now, I, I don't want to get into trouble, but... Did you did you ever actually go and ride one that you weren't supposed to ride? Nick, we couldn't, we can't divulge that really. <laughs> Put it this way: in uh, abroad, you know, they found it even more difficult. If we flew to, you know, <laughs> Italy or you know, Spain. Spain, they didn't have a clue anyway. You know, so um, <laughs> we, you know, in those days, you could get away with a lot more. I, I did go to America on his passport once. It's only because mine had run out, and uh, and I was never detected. I suppose, yes, no, they weren't biometric passports in those days, were they? No. So the old Irish recognition, you were still, you could just fly through. Yeah, I mean, you know, Michael Hills, Richard Hills, you know, uh, going through the airport wasn't a problem. At the races, it was, you know, Michael or Richard, it depended on which one was there. Now, the truth is, you definitely won the derby, didn't you, on Charmin? <laughs> I did. And that, of course, is the great totemic breakthrough moment, isn't it? You know, in any, for any rider. Um, how did you feel when he won the derby? Ah, oh, it's amazing. I mean, I was, you know, it was, a, you know, I, you know, he went in with a chance, or what he thought he had a chance. But no, I was very proud. Um, you know, that's you know the ultimate to win the derby, and uh, it was a great moment. And it's almost unthinkable now that you could go to it with a horse who just had the maiden win for a young trainer who was just establishing himself at the time, William Haggis. You know, we're going back nearly thirty years. Did you go into the race believing that that this was the this was the talent? Yeah, we did. I mean, Willie only had forty horses at the time, and um, his work was incredible. You know, he, he was working uh, with Henry Cecil's horses, so who, he had the favourite, Dishianti, mm. and he was he was working better than him. But Willie wouldn't let me ride him work to start with. He just kept his normal rider on, 
and then he let me ride him work on a race course gallop and he worked fantastic um, and Lester was about uh, he didn't ride, I think he might have rode him once but he was about and he um, took me and showed me all the videos and you know they all sort of, this is how you do it, sit fifth and pull out and away you go but um, he didn't really, he said well how many times have you ridden in it I said oh about, about six times he said well you know what to do then and that was it. And then in the paddock, he called me over. And I thought, hello, here we go. He's going to tell me how to do it. He said, when you win, I want you to walk back to the winner's enclosure, enclosure really slow. I went, why? What? what? He said, because I'm in the director's box. And it takes me ages to walk down. <laughs> 